you are listening to By the Book. Because if you don't look at the world through the Bible, you will never see it right. This is Alan Griffith. Welcome to episode 21 of By the Book. We're glad you're with us today. I hope you've been with us for the last couple of weeks. We've been talking about the rapture, an incredible event that God has prophesied. It's going to come at the end of the church age. So we don't know exactly when that's going to be, but it could be at any time. Now, prophetically, there's other things that could take place before the rapture. Uh, In our times, it's uh, interesting to think about Ezekiel 38, where there is a prophecy that has never been fulfilled. It is yet to be fulfilled when Russia and Iran and other nations will attack Israel. Now, we don't know when that is going to take place, but it could take place uh, anytime, and certainly in the times we're living in, uh, it could take place. So that's, that could happen. That could happen before the rapture. Now, the rapture is the next scheduled event. Uh, that doesn't mean that some things could not happen before it takes place, but nothing has to happen before it takes place. One of the things I'm extremely interested in is the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. Preparations are being made for that. It is going to happen. It could happen before the rapture. It might not happen until under the uh, after the rapture, but it's going to happen. And uh, the sacrificial system will be established again. And when Antichrist finally comes on the scene, one of the things he will do is shut down the sacrificial system in Israel in the temple. So the building of that temple could happen at any time. And there are other things, but nothing has to happen before the rapture. Now, if you haven't been with us, let me just uh, catch you up a little bit on this term rapture. You don't find it in the English Bible. You find the term caught up or caught away. And you find it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Uh, that's a wonderful passage describing the rapture. So you don't find the term rapture, but you find the term caught up. And we pointed out before that the term rapture actually goes back to a translation from the Latin Vulgate. Rapios is the term that is brought forth into English and called rapture. But our New Testament was written in Greek. And so translations today are not done from the Latin Vulgate. They're done from the Greek text. And the Greek term is harpazo. When you translate harpazo into English, you could actually render it rapture, but it is rendered to be caught up. So the day is coming when the Lord Jesus Christ is going to return. He promised that he would return. And the return of Christ is actually a, a twofold event. One day, one day, Jesus Christ will return to the earth. Zechariah tells us that his feet shall stand upon the Mount of Olives. Uh, I've been to the Mount of Olives a number of times, and anytime I'm up there, I just have to pause and think about the incredible truth that someday Jesus Christ is going to come back. He's going to come back to judge the world. He's going to come back to rule and reign for a thousand years. And when he comes back, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. What a beautiful place. You can stand there, look across the Kidron Valley, 
see the eastern gate of Jerusalem. Uh, just an incredible experience. And what a day it will be when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back. However, he's going to come back at another time. It's going to be before that event when he comes in glory. He's going to come not to the Mount of Olives, but he will appear in the air. When he does, a couple of things will happen. First, First of all, the believers of this age, the believers of the church age who have passed away and are buried will be raised from the dead. Now, the person, the person who has passed away of this age, knowing the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, the person, of course, is in heaven. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And in 1 Thessalonians 4, we read that when the Lord Jesus comes back at the rapture, he will bring those people with him, and then there will be a resurrection of their bodies, and they will be united with a new glorified body. So that is an amazing thing to contemplate and to think about. But then the Bible tells us there's going to be a whole generation of believers who are still living on the earth. And after this event, this momentary event of Christ coming, bringing believers with him from heaven, the resurrection of their bodies uh, taking place, once that is done, those who are alive and remain, that's the way the Bible puts it, those who are alive and remain, I hope to be one of them. I hope if you're saved, you hope to be one of them. But those who are alive and remain will then be caught up, there's our term rapture, caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And I think we pointed out last time that will be the first gathering of the whole church, the whole body of Christ. So that's what we anticipate. That's what we look for. Paul talked about looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And praise the Lord, I'm looking, and uh, he's coming. And I'll tell you what, I can't wait until he does. Now, we need to realize that there is a prophetic framework, that's the way I'll describe it, that leads us to our understanding of the rapture and the timing of the rapture as well as the nature of the rapture. And we need to understand that. And the reason we do is because if you talk to people or or listen to preachers, uh, you will find some who say they believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. That's me. That's us. Others will say, well, they believe in a mid-tribulation rapture. Some others will say they believe in a pre-wrath rapture. Some others say they believe in a post-tribulation rapture. Uh, There are some who think there will be no literal rapture of any kind, that it's simply a, a spiritual concept, if you will. But we have a reason for believing what we believe. And we need to go back and see the the prophetic framework that God gives us that will bring us to the rapture 
and hopefully bring us to a proper understanding of when it's going to take place. So we're going to take time and talk about that. And I hope it'll be of a benefit to you because if, if you believe, you need to know what you believe, you need to know why you believe, and that's what we're going to talk about. So how do we get to the rapture? Because if you want to believe the truth of the rapture, again, you need to have some understanding of what I'm calling a prophetic framework. So we're going to go all the way back to the beginning of time, all the way back to creation, when God created Adam and Eve, and he placed them into the Garden of Eden, and as you know, they sinned through the temptation of the devil who appeared as a serpent. Now, I hope you believe there really was a man named Adam. Uh, I've, I've talked to people who take some other view and they think uh, of a theistic evolution or whatever it might be. Listen, for the Bible to mean anything and the coming of Christ to mean anything, when he first came, there had to be a man in Adam, uh, excuse me, a, a man named Adam, and he had to live in the Garden of Eden. And the reason is because the Bible tells us that we are sinners in Adam. And that's why the Lord Jesus came. If there was no Adam, then we are not sinners in Adam, but his sin is the so-called original sin. Now, Eve sinned first, but we're not sinners in Eve because the, the nature, the sin nature is passed on through the man. We'll talk about that someday. But we are sinners in Adam. Jesus Christ came because that man did exist. Adam sinned. When he sinned, he became a sinner. And when he sinned, he could only produce sinners. And when he sinned, he lost dominion over the world that God had given him, and that dominion fell into the hands of Satan. Now, Adam and Eve no sooner sinned, but God responded. And God responded to this newly formed sin problem, if you will, speaking in Genesis 3.15 to the serpent, really to the devil. And I want to read what God said. He spoke to the serpent and said, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. So God immediately promised the Savior, the woman's seed, and of course that would be the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That seed would come to bruise the head of the serpent. Now the serpent bruised the heel of the seed of the woman, and that refers, of course, to the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that was not a, a permanent conquering of Christ, if you will. The Lord Jesus conquered the devil in dying for sin, rising from the dead. And so the devil was conquered by the Lord Jesus Christ. Victory would come, but this promise was made again in Genesis 3.15 right after sin had taken place, but then nothing happened immediately. 
God didn't do anything immediately to deal with that sin problem. As a matter of fact, for the next couple of thousand years after Adam and Eve, the world population grew in number, but deepened in sin. There was continual rebellion against God. The wickedness of men led to the flood of Noah's day. And by that flood, as you know, no doubt, God killed all men, all people, and all living creatures except those that were on the ark which Noah had built. Then that didn't solve everything. We got a new beginning with Noah and his family coming off the ark. But about a hundred years later, after Noah and his family left the ark, men had refused to spread throughout the earth, which is what God wanted them to do. And so now God responds with another judgment, and the judgment came at the Tower of Babel. Now, the judgment of Babel is extremely interesting. As you might know, the judgment was the confusion of languages, but it is quite obvious that the result was only three languages. Sometimes people give the impression that at Babel, no one could understand anyone else, but it seems very, very clear that one language was given to Noah's son Shem and his family. Another language was given to the next son, Japheth, and his family. And yet another language was given to the next son, Ham, and his family. So as a result of the Tower of Babel experience, the people were finally forced through this confusion of languages to spread in different directions. The descendants of Shem went in one direction, the descendants of Japheth in another direction, and the descendants of Ham in yet another direction. And that experience, that spreading of those families, as it were, brought the gradual development of the very first nations of the world. So let's pause here for a moment and think about this. We came to a time in history when there were three divisions of humanity developing, and the truth is that not one of them had any relationship with the true God. They were idolaters. And this experience of, of continual idolatrous worship was a spiritual condition that lasted all the way until about 2000 BC. Think about that. The world went into rebellion, really under Adam and Eve, and continued its rebellion and rejection of the true God. Well, Get this picture then. All of humanity, three different groups, moving around the then known world in rebellion against God, their creator. Now, about 2000 BC, something takes place. According to Genesis 12, 1 to 3, Acts chapter 7, 1 to 4, God suddenly appeared to a man named Abram. Abram was a descendant of Noah's son Shem. 
He lived in Ur of the Chaldees. Ur was a city located about 140 miles south of the ancient city of Babylon, which, by the way, was in present-day Iraq. Now, we know from Joshua 24 that Abram's father, Terah, was an idolater. We assume Abram was an idolater too. But God appeared to him. And when God appeared to him, he told him to leave Ur, to leave that city, to leave his family, and then to follow the instructions that God would give him. What an experience. Now, God did not tell Abram where he was going to lead him, but he made promises to him that if he would obey God's call, those promises would be fulfilled. And so Abram followed God's direction, which led him to Canaan. Now, ancient Canaan is present-day Israel. Get that thought in your mind. Because there, God began to fulfill the promises that he had made to Abram. So out of a world in rebellion, God made himself known to one man, and he called that man to know him and to serve him. Now, I want you to consider with me the promises that God made. So we're going back to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. I'm going to read them. If you have your Bible, open up and follow with me. If you don't have a Bible handy, uh, check it out later. But let me read to you Genesis 3, excuse me, Genesis 12, 1 to 3. It says, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee, and I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Now, this is a turning point in history, and it is a critical prophetic event. First of all, with God's appearance to Abram, he reintroduced himself to his creation. Again, think about that. For for years and years and years, the, the world has lived in rebellion against God, and all of a sudden, God intervenes in the affairs of men. He's, he steps back in and calls a man, a single man, Abram. And through Abram and all that God is going to do through him, God reintroduces himself to creation. The second thing that happens is that God here gives a basic prophetic framework for the plan of salvation, which he had promised in Genesis 3. Now, we're going to have to stop there for today. I hope you'll be with us for our next episode. Lord bless you.